Hello, sales heroes. This is Alex, Alex Fisher from Sherpa. Um, I am so excited about introducing the Ask Alex podcast. I um, had this incredible conversation for our very first episode with Casey Jackson, one of my favorite people in the whole world. Um, Casey is the executive director of the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change. Casey will be joining us for our Empath Conference in December, and um, some of the topics we're going to talk about are also going to be featured um, at Empath. It has to do with, you know, what is empathy? Can empathy really help us get better results in the context of senior living and selling senior living? And so I'm delighted to have had this opportunity to speak with Casey, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. This will be a two-part series, so um, hope you enjoy the first part and then stay tuned for part two. Let's talk first about, again, our main theme is empathy. You can take it anywhere you want, but we could talk about the data around empathy or what is empathy? How do you define it? I think the way that I perceived empathy and now the way that I understand empathy has evolved significantly over my career for sure. I always thought that empathy is caring about people. That's what I used to think, that I, I care about people and and I feel for people. And it wasn't a self-centered feeling, but it made me feel good to feel good about people and to want the best for people. And as I've learned more and studied more, it's helped me understand the difference between empathy and compassion. And what I realized, I was a compassionate person, but I think traditionally at least in our mainstream American culture, we tend to be relatively self-centered. Actually, we tend to be very self-centered, actually, not relatively. We are very self-centered. And so you can be compassionate and still be self-centered, which drifts way far away from what empathy is. Say more about that. I really, that's, that's, please elaborate. Well, you can have people that are compassionate that will advocate for people. You can have people that are compassionate that want to change the world. That has nothing to do with your capacity to enter the shoes of another human being and feel what they feel and think what they think without judging it and without relating it to your own personal experience. Because empathy is other person-centered. How I feel about or what I would do if I was in their situation is very self-centered. Compassion is a self-centered perspective that you want the world to be better. That you're trying to make the world better. You you want to you want to pour out your love and your and your desire for for health and growth and improvement and evolution. That pours out of you is compassion, and it comes from a self-centered place with a desire for others to benefit from that. Empathy is a completely different structure. Empathy is your capacity to leave your brain, to leave your worldview, and enter the brain of another individual. Oh, wow. This is incredible because, you know, I love when I'm proven not wrong, but when I'm able to learn something about something that I was sure about. And and so I talked a lot about stating intention, right? My intention is here to help you, to help you navigate this difficult decision, regardless of whether you choose to move here or somewhere else or move at all. You know, and that's helpful to be able to say that out loud to the person that you're connecting with, to the prospect. But it's not enough because 
It's coming from a place of self-centeredness now, I realize. I did realize that that was a powerful thing to say because it helped me. One day I was making a phone call, a, a prospect called, and I noticed that, that she was very nervous on the phone. And I somehow you know, figured out that what I needed to say was, I, my intention is not to sell you anything. Don't, you know, this is, let's have a conversation. I don't want to sell you anything. And that just sort of changed the tone so yes. quickly of the conversation that I said, oh, great. And then let's teach everybody how to state your intentions. But what you're saying is profound because what you're saying is now, how do you make that intention truly not be self-centered? That's exactly it. And and when we unpack that, Alex, what what you said was a, it came from a, a knowing you just the little that I knew know you, but how deeply I feel like I know you is that that it comes from a place of authenticity. It is what you said was completely genuine and it comes from a place of compassion, but it is still self-centered. Yeah. It, you're stating your reality and you're stating your intention by literally, if you're stating about yourself, that is by definition self-centered. Mm. And, and, and I think this is why there's such a Venn diagram between what people think of when they think of empathy, sympathy, compassion, and these different constructs. And so, yes, they overlap in the middle, but what are the edges that make them separate and those edges that make them separate from me? in my study and my understanding has evolved into the difference between a self-centered and an other centered narrative or where's the language coming from. So if the language is coming from you, that by definition is centered on your reality or your perception of someone else's reality. What I'm attempting to do there is to create this, this idea of psychological safety, which is used a lot in, in organizations, leadership, and, and it's this idea of being able to communicate something uh, to someone else that, you know, to, a, to your team member or to, to your prospective buyer or anywhere where you create an environment in which the person is not defended they can actually open up without fear of being judged. So I'm using the ter term create psychological safety, but let's unpack that because, and going back to compassion, the difference between compassion and sympathy, both of those being me-centered, I feel, I feel like I want to do well. I feel like I want to do great for another person, but it's still me. Yes. So, so then how would you define sympathy? Well, sympathy is how you feel about someone's situation. When, you, when you're talking about older adults and you walk into a situation and they're either hoarding or they're destitute or it's physically, physically unsafe, and you're thinking, how could someone let an older adult be in this situation? Your heart just pours out to them. That's sympathy. The fact that you want to change that is compassion. All of those things, again, are what, how I feel, what I want my desire to, to help someone, but that still hasn't addressed the other person's right. willingness, motivation, fears, or how they think about their situation. Do they even want to be yeah. helped? That's exactly it. And, and what you're assessing is, do they even feel two ways about their situation? Is there part of them that they've lived there for 50 years and raised, you know, four kids who don't speak to them anymore. And their husband died in that house as well too. And they don't want to leave that house and their pets are there and their neighbors are there. And there's another part of them that gets scared at night because they can't care for themselves. 
and there's noises and aches and pains that they have that they're terrified of that all exists within their experience. Right. That's the empathy part is what is going on inside of their experience. Our desire to help our compassion is let me help you get out of this situation. Like I can, I can, you can have a better quality of life. That's a compassionate thing. That's an advocacy thing that is disrespectful of their actual reality though. You don't know what their reality is. Uh, Yes, exactly. Oh, I just, again, um, this is so cool because that's exactly right. We want to help someone see their reality through our eyes. Yes. Um, That's the definition of me-centered. It is. Um, And every conversation I have with that person is for me to get ammunition or information. Let's be nicer about it. information about their situation so that I can tell them what to do based on what I know. And the more I know, the more ammunition I have, information, beliefs I have to try to convince them. This is the definition of sales. Yes. And this is what I want. I want to change the world. (laughs) Yes. And, And these conversations, I want to change this because it is so crucial to that we understand this and that we skill get ourselves the skills to do this this um, person centered prospect centered approach, um, but we need the skills and most of us don't have them. Yes. Um, what are some of the newest data on empathy? Does it work? Uh, why are we even talking about it if what we're doing is just convincing somebody to pick an apartment? The complexity, just like you and I have talked about, Alex, is the complexity with the data is the complexity with the way people define it. It depends on how you're going to find it and what data you look at. Um, and so what I know some of the most recent, more recent data, like kind of recent, even talking like 10, 15, 20 years ago, is what they realized in healthcare is that if you had better bedside manner, you had less malpractice lawsuits. So they started to be nicer and build better friendship. That doesn't, and that would be called empathy. And that's actually not empathy. That's building relationship, which Mm -hmm. is, that's your parallel with relationship sales. If you don't just call it cold call and keep pushing people, if you actually bring them a basket of their favorite muffins uh, and talk about their dog, Fifi, um, that you're as a higher likelihood you'll get a sale. So that's where relationship sales came from that data back then as well too. And that was, I believe, um, mislabeled as empathy. That's not empathy. That's compassion potentially, or feigned compassion and relationship building. Um, and this idea that if I do something nice for you, you're going to like me a lot. And therefore you're going to want to buy from me. Right. If you trust me, if you know that I'm looking out for your best interest, then you're going to trust me more. And that's relationship sales, but that is not empathy at all. That doesn't even, so that's why when you even look at the data of what the data says, you have to be cautious about what empathy is. And this, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the, one of the most recent articles that I read that, that triggered me was that, um, and this was just within the last year to two years, the, the title of the article, the research around it was that are robots better at motivational interviewing than humans? And, oh, they were, wow. and they were talking about empathy. So I read the research around this And what they actually said is that the feedback from the participants, what they liked about working with the robot was all they would do is when they wanted information is they just tap it on the head and it would give them an affirmation or a reflection. But what they said, the thing they loved the most about the entire process was that they didn't feel judged. 
And, wow. and that is equipoise and managing your writing reflex and motivational interviewing is keeping your bias out of it, which is hard for human beings to keep bias out of conversation. So I was bothered by what they said because they said, are, are robots more empathetic than humans is what they were proposing or hypothesizing. I'm like, that has nothing to do with empathy. That has to do with lack of judgment, literally based on what their participants had said. They didn't like to feel judged. That is not I'm knowing that at a foundation of empathy, of really expressing empathy is that you refrain from judgment. That's it. Because it, judgment is self-centered. Mm-hmm. That's exactly and it. That's when I start giving my opinion, you should do this, the convincing, then maybe I... Mm-hmm. And, and I was just talking to someone else in senior living. And what I love, it's a term that she used that really helped me understand even further about working in senior living and sales is she said, one of the things we try to do is manage influencers. So she's got a neighbor that's an influencer. She's got an adult child who's an influencer and we're trying to manage influencers. And I said, so you can be the number one influencer? Like what? So you're trying to manage other influences so you can be the number one influence and why? So you can make a sale. So that is not, that's not empathy and that's not compassion. And it's not bad and it's not wrong. Just don't call it other things. It's not mm. bad, it's not wrong. It, it may be helpful to the person and you may make a sale out of that and it may improve your community. That's great. Just don't call it empathy. Right. Because it's still right. self-centered. We need to redefine what this relationship is because you're not building relationships. You couldn't possibly build relationships with 100, 200, 300, or even 10 people in your database, unless you're a lonely soul that's looking for, for, for a grandma out there. Yes. But relationships are hard and they imply um, a lot of things. I mean, we, we bring to relationships a very, a very flawed self that's trying to sync up with another human being yes. so that we can just uh, feel connected and, and do fun stuff with people and just have people to be there for us. This is different. I mean, when I thought it was about building relationship and taking, and it is, I mean, it is about you taking the, you know, the basket to Mrs. Jones house and sitting with her in the living room and appreciating and understanding her environment and asking her questions. Yeah, that is very helpful. But my point there was not to become her best friend or her granddaughter or her daughter. I realized that when I tried to do that, I, I shied away from building relationships because it was too much responsibility. You take on the responsibility of the other person and, you know, and, and it's impossible and it's not very effective for the person. The person's not looking for a granddaughter or a friend. They're looking to get the heck out of a difficult situation uh, that they're in and they don't know how to do it. And you, what you're there to do is to generate certainly trust building, curiosity, authenticity, and generate a dialogue so that the talker, the prospect, can think about what they're thinking and say it out loud. It's creating an environment, it's, it's, it's creating this environment of this empathic process. So anyway, 
I just need to really unpack that because I think it's so important that we understand that. So the data shows that empathy or using empathy or skilling ourselves or, you know, strengthening our empathic skills is critical to outcomes. Yes. To unpack partly what you're talking about, and this is from somebody that's a social worker who studies brain science and psychology and people and those things, which is different than sales. But when you look through my lens, think how crazy it sounds that your grocer is going to show up at your house. The local grocery guy is going to show up at your house and bring you a basket of muffins because they want to talk to you about your life. Um, how often is that? How often does a, a car dealer show up at your house and talk to you about your life? How often does, you know, the plumber show up and talk to you about your life and bring you a, a pie to talk about your life? Those are all salespeople or service people. How many show up at your house to build a relationship with you? So, so what makes senior housing different except for you're trying to get a way in and prospect to get somebody to fill your senses? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so, it's, it's so, so the narrative is we're coming from a place of compassion. We're working with a vulnerable population, but there's no difference between that and any other salesperson. There's just an oddness that gets created that, well, we're going to bring a, a, a pie or a basket of muffins to talk about their situation and to perceive that that is empathy is it's an inaccurate assessment is what it is. Um, right. Because if that's really what you want to do, then you'd go work for adult protective services. You wouldn't work, <laughs> make money in sales. Does that make sense? So it makes perfect sense. So you're trying to think about, but the thing that I have such a deep appreciation for your approach and your experience, Alex, in this is you want awareness of quality of life to be increased for older adults, that that they have awareness and they have informed choice, that there may be a quality of life that they're completely unaware of, that they could thrive in their later years, and that their brains may be unaware that they have that option. And I know that's where you operate from. And that's how you're trying to find what is the formula that is different from traditional sales to increase true awareness and true accurate informed choice for older adults that may not know what their options potentially are or that other lives could exist that they have access to. My story regarding that, I had to face a lot of change in my life, big changes. I had to navigate, you know, moving from country to country. Um, I lost, I moved like 38 times in 45 years. Um, I'm not from around here, judging from my accent. I had to reach out to people and I was tremendously resistant to getting help. I will figure this out. And I became my own teacher of change. Not a great one, but this reflection and awareness helped me understand what it was that was happening to me when I needed, when change was inevitable, when, you know, my ex-husband came in and said, hey, we're in Trinidad next week, we need to move to Wyoming. I didn't even know where Wyoming was. And we're living in Trinidad and Tobago at the time. And I had to change. And I didn't have anyone that was able to really help me understand what was going on in terms of all these emotions. And it was through that process that I started to be compassionate 
for people that are having to face change, where they have to let go of something, uh, of a story, of a narrative of their lives that meant so much to them, where their identity has been tied into it. That's a long way of saying that, you know, what I would like to, to help people with, you know, specifically leasing counselors, is to, to at least have a deep understanding of what prospective clients are going through. And then maybe that helps activate their compassion, their sympathy, but now helps them have a desire to actually have the skills to, to actually help the person convince themselves of what's best for themselves. So what are some of those empathic skills? How do you apply them? Of course, I have a thousand thoughts just based on what you just shared. So, so the first thing I think of when you share even your story, Alex, is A, you don't need to be rescued. You are way too powerful of a woman to need someone to rescue you. And if you knew, if, if you were given, if you were shown the right tools and the right resources and how to wield those as you're going to Wyoming, you would thrive. You just don't know where the tools or how to access those are. And, and that's what empowerment is about that's other person-centered. It's not, oh, Alex, let me help you acclimate to this. Oh, Alex, here, let me help you make some decisions around this. Because those approaches assume that I'm in a better position than you are to know what's best for you. And it's, there's a tone that's condescending about that. I'm You're, smiling. Exactly. Right. Because right. I could come in, if you moved to Wyoming and I lived in Wyoming, I'm like, oh, Alex, here, let me help you navigate this. Let me help you. Oh, you're going to love it here in yes. Wyoming. Yeah. You're going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so similar to Tobago. It's so similar. There's so many wonderful <laughs> Like, yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, is that I, I want to reinforce that that is a natural, normal human response that builds community. And that is not empathy and that is not empowerment. What empathy is, is this is effing wild to you. You literally have left, you're on another planet now and don't know which end is up. And you know you're strong, you know you have capacity, but you have no idea where to start. Like this is so overwhelming. To try to acclimate to this hurts your brain and you want to get it right. Like you want to make this work, but you don't know what that looks like. And part of you just thinks, I just want to fly back. Like, this is not my home. This is not my people. This is not my tribe. And I'm not judging. I just don't want to be here. This is not where my skill set is. This is not, this doesn't breathe who I am. That's an empathetic response because it's trying to get into what could it feel like to be in this person's reality. I, I, I may have shared this with you, but one thing that was just mind blowing to me when I was younger in one of those philosophical conversations, and we we're talking about it, somebody's teaching me about empathy is they said, I just want you to think about how would you explain to some eel, snake-like, underwater being that has no eyes, that is, you know, 5,000 miles under the ocean's surface, I want you to think about how will you communicate with that creature what it feels like to have bare feet walking through the grass in the sunlight? Hmm. So how will you explain that to them? 
it's like, and my brain just melted and fell out of my ears. Cause it's like, I have no idea how to do that. And it's like, because you're not willing to leave your own reality. And no, so you I, to- I try to explain to the eel that's swimming in the water. That's never come out of that environment. What water is. Right. That's exact. And this is, it's just, you have to leave everything that you know to be true. You have to leave yourself to step inside of the world of another person. And that is not the way we were originally designed on a spiritual, whatever that is level. We have developed that way. But when you look at the, that hamburger between in our skull, we don't use most of it. So what is it used for that? You know, it's not just to make scrambled eggs in the morning. You know, it, it's, there's so many things out there that we, our brains have the capacity to experience uh, and to share but it's how do we do it in a, in a non-traditional way? We've learned traditional ways that are fine and they build community and they, and they build connection, they build relationship, but that does not mean that it's empathy because empathy is other-centered and empathy means if it's other-centered, we need to surrender ourselves and people are very uncomfortable surrendering themselves. And actually quite conversely, people are more comfortable holding on to themselves and def- look at politics. They will define themselves to their own not to things that will destroy them personally so they can hold a belief or hold a flag in their hand mm. they, because they decide that is what's going to define me. So to think you're doing the exact opposite of that, to, to surrender all of that, to step into somebody else's reality is not normal. It's not. No, the it is. That's not how we're wired. It's it? not how we're wired, but we can. So be wired how do we do it? How do we hack it? Do you have some hacks? The first thing is get to, to a somebody experiencing our empathy. Your your the level of expertise you develop empathy is going to be directly proportionate to how bad do you want to do it? How bad do you want to acquire that skill? It, it's okay, it's let's not pause it, there for a moment. How okay. bad do you want to do it? Okay, now I'm a leasing counselor. I've got kids. I've got to meet my quotas. I need yes. to have my five move-ins this month. Okay, yes. most. Are telling me I'm not ready yet. Yes. COVID, whatever excuses. Yes. I am panicking here. I got to get my move-ins. I am. Most of prospects are rejecting my my attempts to get them to come in for the tour and get them to sign. It, occasionally, I find someone that's ready, and then I'm fighting with my competitor over that one by giving yes. discounts, and then I'm just desperately going <laughs> up to the top and saying, "Give me more leads. These ones aren't ready," and then they're the same leads. So, so here's what's in my head. Okay. And now you're telling me, Alex, you know, you gotta, you gotta skill up, you know, you gotta get your skills um, in terms of the empathic process, because that's, what's going to give you more results. That's what's actually going to answer um, the, I'm not ready uh, prospect. Right. Right. Well, and the first thing I so think that's with- my reality. That's right. my reality. That's everybody's reality, you know, yes. plus or minus. And, and what I love about that is that when my brain start, starts to shift over to empathy, the first thing I think of is you don't have enough time to breathe, let alone learn a technique that sounds like some foo-foo therapy counseling technique where we sit around a circle and burn candles and talk about life. I don't have time to do that. I've got kids to feed. I got to keep this job and I'm debating if I want to keep this job because I literally think it's killing me and I can't even go to, I had to cancel my doctor's appointment tomorrow because I've got to follow up on this lead. Like that's the level of stress you're under right now. That right there is an expression of empathy. 
That's the whole, that's the, it means you need to leave your reality and go, holy shit, why would you want to learn empathy when you can barely breathe right now? You need somebody that shows you empathy because you're barely functioning. Yes. That's, that's an empathetic response. And that's somebody, okay, sales leaders out there, executive directors out there, that somebody should be, again, that culture where empathy is demonstrated and the empathic process is, is utilized, you know, so that first I feel, well, can you, let me just say this, is in some way, and this is a weird thought I just had, some way, you know, I always talk about self-awareness, right? So yeah. self-awareness yeah. is basically basically saying, okay, how am I showing up for this prospect today? Whether yes. I pick up the phone or someone comes, how, and then what, what is it that is going on in my head? What's my reality? And by acknowledging my reality and knowing that that reality, the pressure for the move-in is going to kind of derail my ability to truly be empathic. That's where I use just a few minutes to maybe just a few seconds, because that takes practice to have this awareness of how am I showing up Yes, and regulate that so that I can create the best other-centered environment. But first, I have to think about all that shit that's going on yes. inside my head and, and, and stop that or acknowledge it. You can't stop it because that's normal. That's how our brain yes. works. Yes. But acknowledge that and know that I am a professional and yes. I need to regulate that so that I can show up Yes. To my prospect, to the phone call, even to, to the email. Yes. I can show up by saying, I am interested in you and your experience. This and, and what you're trying to untangle here, Alex, that's so complex when you're looking from a DM or an ED perspective, from an executive director perspective, or from a CEO perspective or CO perspective, what you have to start to untangle is you can say express empathy. But if the culture is not supporting that, because what I can almost guarantee is what the culture supports is, but have you gotten five move-ins this month? Oh, of course. Absolutely. That's it. And so immediately there is a dishonesty or an incongruence between leadership who has a beautiful vision, mission, and value statement hanging in their office that they are not embodying in the way that they're treating their own staff. And that's why I want to continue to distinguish between the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. You don't need to have sympathy for your staff. You don't need to have compassion for your staff. But if you do not have empathy and they don't feel heard and understood, you will lose your staff because they're not going to just keep cranking things out if they have life pressures weighing on them. And this doesn't excuse life pressures that we all have that keep us from doing our jobs. It's how do you maximize human potential? And you maximize human potential by making them feel valued and heard and understood, which does not remove the need to achieve outcomes. It's just, and this is why it's so hard to untangle all of this, because as an executive director, the first thing I think of is, so me being empathy as an ED is not going to fill these beds. That's, I know the way that the brain works around this. But it actually is going to feel bad. Yes. I can't make that connection in my brain yet. Right. And, and the way that this happens is because if you hire the right people to do the right job, then they will be doing their jobs better if they feel heard and understood. And it's not just like, oh, I understand where you're coming from. That's not what empathy is. Because, oh, I understand where you're coming from is still self-centered. So 
it's and and this is why it's so complex what you're trying to unpack. But when you start to see the tumblers line up, why it is a combination that people have yet to figure out the combination too. So as an ED, what you think of is if our vision and values is we want people treated with respect, including our staff, we want to have engaged and passionate staff. We want to provide exceptional customer service. If you provide exceptional customer service, people won't want to go to the community across the street. They want to go to the one that provides exceptional customer service that they feel heard, seen, and understood. That's where I would want to live. Is where you want to live there? You want to work there? You want to? You want to be a part of that because Absolutely. I want to be a part in which a part uh, that's home. That's the home. definition of home. Home is where I I'm seen, valued, understood, and I yes. belong. Yes, and that doesn't abdicate your responsibilities to keep the community functioning. So that's why it doesn't remove the need for outcomes or productivity. It just creates what you call that safe space, that safe, trusting, secure space where people then can perform to their optimal level. And so there is to in order to avoid this cognitive dissonance, I call it cognitive dissonance, yeah. it's probably not the right term, but where you're hearing two different dis- disconnected or dissonant. Um, directives. Yes. Take your time with your prospects, be quote unquote empathic, but I need the five movings. Move what happened to what happened in the tour? Basically, did you close them? Yes. You know, the, what happened? How did the tour go? Means did they close? Yes. It's just, it's just awful. It's just yeah. awful. And it's a reality and it is. So yeah. back to, to why would I want to knowing that I have all these pressures and you know what the answer is the compassionate answer okay alex is working so hard she's had the tours covid dried up leads dried up uh, opportunities for people to come in so the job is harder our occupancy is going down our margins are are very narrow the ed is having a lot of pressure how do i navigate all that other than saying if I'm the executive director and I tell the executive director, you know, it's just these leads aren't, you know, they're not, they're not good. You know, these people, I need more leads. I need yeah. more leads. <laughs> I understand and- that. Here's, here's the thing that I put on the ED. There's, there's a couple of things. And this is for, again, somebody who's not involved in sales. So I, I always just own that straight up front. That's so fine. I'm, so unpacking this from a naive brain. The first thing I think of is, if you have an exceptional product, you shouldn't have to sell anything. That's marketing. You have to market an exceptional product, but you shouldn't have to. If it's exceptional and it's marketed well, people will, people will buy it. So it, it starts, then what I have to look at as an ED is, do we have an exceptional product? And I am responsible as an ED of making sure we have an exceptional product. If we have an exceptional product, it takes the burden off my salespeople. For sure. But now let me tell you this. Everybody believes they have an exceptional product, but our products aren't very differentiated in the market. Most senior living communities within the same market area offer very similar things. Yes. What makes an exceptional product is the question that the ED needs to ask themselves, because we are assuming that the bar, you know, that you have that you have a good functioning team, that you are you have zero deficiencies or very low deficiencies. When yes. if you're state, you know, if you if you're licensed, uh, lots of different factors that that your food quality, blah 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 blah. 
Yes. But what makes you accept, and that's a given, that's what you yes. need to do in <laughs> yes. order to, you know, yes. not to get sued and yes. to have a good environment. But an exceptional product is the one in which the residents, prospects, and team members feel like they belong, that that's home. They feel a strong sense of home, and that's fostered by a culture of empathy, a culture of trust, a culture in which people can speak up, can advocate yes. for, for each other. They have leadership that understands you know, all those things, and that's really difficult to do. So when we say that sales, for me, yes. is the reflection of your operational culture, Yes. Sales is just another part of operations. And that's where you get to demonstrate what your operational culture is. So here's here's what I think of, Alex, and talking again from my naive brain and walking through this is, are there more beds in the U.S., more cottages, more independent living? Are there more of those than there are people that need them, not understand it or aware of it, but that need them? Or is there not oh. a with a silver tsunami coming? Yeah, the answer is unequivocally there are more people than Needed. units. So, oh, 100%, because our penetration rate in, our, in this industry is around 10%. Exactly. So, so this is my issue with sales and marketing that. You don't need new leads. You have to have an exceptional product that's marketed to people who want it. And here's the thing about differentiation. Um, when you look at different owners of communities, there is going to be the fundamental reality that Alex likes Lysol wipes better and I like Clorox wipes better. That's just fundamental. And I'll tell you what, as soon as COVID hits, if you can't get Clorox wipes and I can't get Lysol wipes, we will take the bargain brand because we need them during COVID. So when things are flourishing, people are going to seek exception. They're going to seek what they want in their preference. But if the need exists, people will accept it. So yes, you want to have an exceptional product because you want to be able to make it through good times and bad times. And if you have an exceptional product, people are always going to still seek out Lysol wipes. There's always going to be a marketing industry for Lysol wipes. And there's always going to be a market industry for Clorox wipes. There may not always be as big of a market for the bargain brand, or maybe there's a bigger market for the bargain brand of disinfectant wipes. But this is the same thing I'm thinking about with these communities as well too. If you have more, and when there's so much need, people will take anything they can get. So that's why it's so odd to me to hear these aren't good leads. I know. That's just odd to my brain and I'm not in sales. So that's why it can be odd to me. The first thing I think is there's someone out there in this community that is unaware of this product and I don't need to sell them the product. I need to take them from a state of pre-contemplation of not being aware of a product to aware of a product and have them explore would that product improve the quality of their life? That's person-centered. Absolutely. And here's the thing with marketing, right? It's not that people aren't necessarily more and more they're aware of the product. Um, you know, there are other markets, for example, in the UK, where the notion of retirement communities um, is, is very new. And it's interesting what's going on over there in terms of raising awareness of the product. First of all, what it is, and then how mine is better than yours. Yes. For the most part, that what's baffling about this idea of more leads, more leads, that somehow the more leads is going to be better, is that fundamentally prospective 
prospects, prospective buyers have a, an inherent bias about the product. They feel that this is where I go to lose my independence, which yes. means I'm going to lose my identity. Yes. Because when they say independence, what they really mean, I think, is I don't want to lose my identity. Because obviously they are not all that independent to begin with. Otherwise, they wouldn't have called. That's it. They feel they're in control of their environment, even though they're not independent. They're dependent on their daughter. They're dependent on many things, but they're them. They're themselves. So they have this inherent bias, but they still have the need. What's really unique about selling senior housing is that your marketing can be fantastic and you can entice people to take a look, but people don't pick up the phone to say, I'm going to leave my house for 50 years to move to your place because of your marketing. They do it because of something at home is not working. Right. And certainly they will be more inclined to inquire to your community if you've done a really great job promoting it and showing it for all its beautifully exceptional features and culture and residents, et cetera. And that's great. But that does not address once you get the lead, you have the lead. Getting leads in our in a sense is just give me a list of age and income qualified people and I'll get the get you the move-ins. So what happens there is that they're facing change that is really difficult to make. And it's the, the fear of losing your identity, the fear of, yeah. of being yanked out of your home, the fear of losing control, the fear of all those, those are really real and gets in the way. And we have no or very few skills to address that to help them address that and untangle in their own heads and resolve. And this takes time. Yes. Right. But it takes more skill from yes. the leading counselor yes. perspective yes. to help them, to help them come to the conclusion, to a conclusion, resolve their ambivalence about this and that. So, so that's where I just, I just really wanted to talk about how do we get better at addressing that that gap that well, I'm not ready through an empathic process that helps the person feel seen, feel be seen, not just feel seen, be right. seen. Which again, you can be compassionate and make someone try to make someone someone feel something. You have no control of how someone's going to feel. Right. You may think that by saying something, you're going to make them feel a certain way, but that's absolutely baloney. Right. But understand how they feel so that they can say it out loud. Well, and, and part of the combination or the key in this, what you just were talking about is the wildly big gap between knowledge and skill. So you, you can go to conferences and people, you can say these things and people know it when you say it it does not mean they have the skill to embody it or the workforce has the skill to embody it. That's the problem. We can all nod our heads when somebody talks about it and go, yeah, I get it. That makes sense. I think we do that. But if you can't measure or know you're using that skill set, that's why I became obsessed with motivational interviewing. That's why I love teaching that because it is a measurable skill set for how to embody the things that you're talking about and, and to check, to be able to measure if what you're doing is actually accurate. Is it working and is it accurate? And, and those are the kind of, instead of it being 
that it just feels like it's these wisps, wisps of smoke that we're trying to grab onto and can't quite grasp. We can kind of see them out of the corner of our eye. That doesn't help embody the process of it. You have to be able to understand it, have the skill set around it, and then be able to embody that and, and practice it and demonstrate it. And that's, that's very specific methods of communication. So that was part one of my discussion with Casey Jackson. You can catch part two next week. Um, I can't wait for you to hear the rest of the conversation because um, we didn't want to stop talking. Uh, it goes pretty deep and um, it was enjoyable, at least for me, because I learned a lot. You can learn more about Casey's work uh, at CaseyJackson.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y-J-A-C-K-S-O-N.com. And um, thank you so much for coming with us on this journey. I'm a bit nervous and we'll iron out all the kinks as we go along, but uh, looking forward to creating conversation and community around this very important subject of um, how to do better at sales and in life. So see you next time. In the meantime, stay heroic. Okay.